Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to Abundant Life Church. Wherever you are watching or listening from, we are so glad uh, that you are a part of this and, and more specifically that you have invited us in. So uh, if you have invited us into your living room today, your family room, into your car while you're driving, wherever you are at, uh, thanks for being a part of this and thanks for connecting with us. It's beautiful to be a part of the church in a season like this. My name is Jeremy and I'm the lead pastor here. And and today's message is going to be called We First. And so if you wanna take notes today, I encourage you to to write that down, We First. And then in our Bibles, we're gonna be in Genesis chapter four. And so I wanna give you a moment uh, to get your spot there if you've got a physical Bible or a Bible app on a phone or device. Uh, Genesis is an easy one to find. You go all the way back to the beginning, the book of Genesis, and literally these are the opening pages of scripture. And so we're gonna see a profound question in Genesis four uh, that I think we can wrestle with today and is going to be helpful for us today. Now, I also wanna let you know as you're turning to Genesis, now we've got a, an exciting thing we're, we're doing this week. We've uh, done this once. We did it a couple weeks ago. We're going to try it again. Uh, we're going to do a Q&A on Monday night at 7.30 p.m. And so I want to encourage you to take advantage of this. Uh, you can go on to alcpnw.com forward slash questions, and you can sign up for this. And so if you want the Zoom link, uh, go ahead and sign up. Uh, We're going to do Slido, which is a a software that we've used before, uh, where you guys can submit your questions to this, and you can submit questions live if you're in this chat with us. And then uh, I'm just going to unpack some of those. And so uh, we did this a couple weeks ago, and it was great to go deeper into the message onto some of the the things that I just don't have time uh, to go into when we're together. But uh, when we have a QA, and a we can unpack some of those ideas a little bit deeper and also just to talk about this season right now and things that I'm learning, things that we're learning as a church. And so I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, I think it would be awesome to have you there. And so we want to encourage you Monday night, 7.30 p.m. Please sign up in advance so that you can join us for that. Well, as we sit here in quarantine and this keeps going and it goes week after week after week, the reality is that quarantine is not going well for everyone. And I don't know how it's going for you, but I have seen a number of stories that illustrate how difficult this is for so many people. Let me give you just a few examples. Uh, There was one person who on the very first day of quarantine uh, had their shower break. Check out this photo. And I, I remember looking at this and going, oh man, that is going to be a rough quarantine, especially if that is your only bathroom, that is your only shower. And I've seen a number of people who've had that experience. One person had a couple gallons of, of honey in their car and uh, realized that they probably shouldn't have left it there. And so here's the first photo of the honey in the car. And so you can kind of get an idea there. And here's what happens when you leave honey in your car for too long and it cracks. And I cannot even imagine trying to get that out of a car. That would not be fun. Or how about this one? Uh, Someone decided with all their quarantine time that they had, uh, they're gonna tackle some of those home projects. And uh, one of them was going to be installing their own kitty door. And so they did this and you can see uh, how that played out for them. 
I can only imagine when they went to install that door and actually put the door back on that sick feeling in their stomach to realize, oh no, what have I done? Now you might look at those and, and maybe your reaction is, whew, thank goodness that didn't happen to me. Right? Like, thank goodness that's someone else's problem. That's someone else's headache. I'm just glad that I don't have to deal with that. Now, there's something very just natural about that response. When you see someone else going through something and, and it's not as bad for you, or maybe it's just bad in a different way, to have a weird sense of gratitude of, I'm glad I'm not dealing with what you're dealing with. And, and, and while that's very natural, that has some uh, deep implications for, for how we live and for how we interact with those around us. Now, I wanna show you why this matters so much. I wanna invite you into Genesis chapter four. And, and in Genesis four, you have, again, these are the opening uh, stories of scripture. Uh, you get Adam and Eve, then you get to Adam and Eve's kids. And, and it's two sons named Cain and Abel. And again, uh, even their understanding of God is very, very basic at this point. We don't have a ton that has been developed uh, in the first few chapters of Genesis yet. And, and so you have this real iconic story with a question that I want us to consider today. And so if you've got your Bibles with me, uh, we're going to look at Genesis chapter four, beginning in verse three. It says this, when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, his brother, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. Now, again, a lot of speculation here. We don't actually know a ton of, of why this is the case, uh, but we know that, that God looks favorably upon Cain's gift and, and does not, or excuse me, on Abel's gift and does not have the same reaction to Cain. And so Cain is kind of left with this response. This made Cain very angry. What's up with this? Why my brother and not me? And, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. And one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now I wanna focus here on Cain's question. Am, am I my brother's guardian? Why are you asking me? about Abel? Why are you asking me about the welfare of my brother? I, am I his guardian? That's the New Living Translation. Most translations, and depending on one, which one you're using, uh, most translations say, am I my brother's keeper? Am I, am I like responsible? Am I supposed to keep things in place for my brother? I, is that my job? In fact, the message paraphrase version uh, even goes further and says, Am I his babysitter? 
Like, and you can just get the, the feeling there, the frustration, like, why are you asking me? What, what am I, his little babysitter? I've got to take care of him. Why should I have to have an answer to this question? Why, why are you looking at me, God, in light of my brother? Why don't you go talk to him? Now, what responsibility do you and I have to those around us? Again, this, this question is so powerful and almost haunting when it comes at this point in, in the narrative. But, but what responsibility do we have to those around us? And it's an especially profound question in the midst of a pandemic. What responsibility do you and I have to those around us? Now, again, let's take some of the illustrations we've seen so far. What does it mean for me if your shower breaks? What does it mean for me, right? That's how you begin to answer this question. What does it mean for me if honey leaks in your car? What, what does that mean for me? What does it mean for me if you ruin a door in your house? Right? Like these things, they did not happen to me, but, but this question begins to invite us to connect them. They go, what is happening to you? How do I connect that to me? How do I proactively say, well, if, if I'm your keeper, and I'm going to start thinking about this. How do I connect these? How do I figure out what it means for me in light of what it meant for you? Now, as Cain asks this question, I think in Cain's point of view, uh, he thinks it's a very valid question. Like, you know, maybe he thought he would stump God. Uh, maybe he thought like God's going to have no answer to this. Like, hey, God, I'm not his babysitter. Remember, never assigned me this. And maybe he's expecting that. But if he is expecting that, the next part isn't going to go well for Cain because God has an answer. And God drops an incredible truth uh, upon Cain here that I think most of us have overlooked. And most of us don't even realize how profound God's response to Cain's question truly is. Notice in, in verse 10 what God said. He says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God's going, you want to know why I'm asking you this? Because his blood is crying out. Now, at first you, you think, does God not know where Abel is? Right, and that's why, you know, Cain's like, I don't know, why are you asking me? What, what can't you tell where, where Abel is? Can't you tell he's not here? But here we find out God knows exactly what has happened to Abel. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, how far does this go? How far does this truth go when we begin to think about, when we begin to unpack this truth today? Now, obviously this covers a murder, right? So if, if we are to murder someone else, if we are to unjustly take the life of another human being, that, that, that blood cries out to God from the ground, we, we can see this theme develop. But what about if, if life is lost because we neglected those around us. Is that cause for the blood to cry out? Is there blood crying out to God right now? In this season that we're in where, where thousands of people, tens of thousands of people are, are dying around us, is there blood crying out to God right now? And what responsibility do you and I have 
in a situation like that? What, what does it mean for us if we ask the same question that Cain is asking? Are we our brother's keeper? Now, I, I think what happens here is that there is a progression of understanding, if you will, uh, that, that as we develop through life, there is a goal of, of maturity in perspective, and I can illustrate it in, in four steps. Now, here's what you have to understand. It's not everybody develops through these four steps. Some people never get past step one, but I would suggest the goal is to realize where we begin and to keep going in our understanding. And so a progressive understanding would, would begin like this. I belong to me, right? That, that's how we start out. That's, that's the thinking of a kid, right, of, of a child. I belong to me. I do what I want. Uh, what's in it for me? This is really the extent of what a, a child is thinking. But again, you probably know some adults like this who behave like this. And, 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 you know, reality TV is filled with this perspective. I belong to me. I do what I want. I think about what I want. That's really the extent of, of all of this. It's just about me. I belong to me. But hopefully you can progress beyond that. And I would say the, the next step goes to I belong to you. Right? And this is the thinking of a lover. Right, the, the, the moment you find that other person, you say, wow, there's something in you. And, and you are willing to give a piece of yourself to that other person and go, I, I don't want to just belong to me anymore. I want to belong to you and I want you belong to me. And, and we're going to make this exchange here and we're going to submit to one another. And this is, this is the thinking of lovers. Right? And it's beautiful that I belong to to you. And it's a huge step beyond I belong to me. And, and it begins a, a journey. And, and anyone who has experienced love like this to, to truly lose themselves into another person understands it changes you. Right? You are not the same person you were. When you meet that other person, you are willing to give yourself to them in that way. There's something inside of you that changes. And, and, and so I belong to you can, can, can be this incredible display of love. And then if you have kids, you, you, you feel that toward children. You can feel that even toward friends, I think. But, but really this extent of I'm giving some of myself to you. And now I'm responsible to you. And, and as a parent, you realize this feeling uh, deeply. I mean, every time, you know, we, we have family dinner, uh, my wife, Michelle, and I, we are getting our kids uh, their food first before ours. And there are sometimes our kids are done eating by the time Michelle and I even get everything figured out. But that's, that's how this love works. I belong to you. I, I, I'm giving that to you. And a lot of people think that that's all there is. That, that is the extent of love. And, and according to the world, that might be true. But if we follow Jesus, uh, we, we begin to realize that the progression keeps going. And so after I belong to you becomes, I belong to God. And so beyond just you, I'm realizing I'm actually belonging to something greater than you. I, I, I belong to God. And so that is going to shape how I give myself to you, uh, but it's going to even take it further, 
it's going to add more accountability. It's going to add more intensity to what I give myself to because now I'm realizing that I belong to something far greater. And this would be a Christian response to say, I belong not just to me, not just to you, but I belong to God. And it's a realization to, to look back at that which has created us and say, you know what? I recognize you. God, I, I see you and I, and I acknowledge that I belong to you. And, and again, many people say, okay, that's where you stop. But I'd like to suggest that it goes even one step further. And, and maybe the one we just talked about is the Christian response, but here's a mature Christian response or a, a kingdom response, if you will. And that would be this, we belong to God. And that really is a game-changing uh, turn there, it is this realization of, wow, God, you have done this for me, and, and that's incredible, and I begin to see my identity, I begin to see my purpose, I begin to see my value in you. But then if I can get to we belong to God, I can see that in the people around me. And I don't just see the people around me relationally, how they may be interacting with me uniquely, but in relationship of all of us to our creator, because we all belong to God, that, that God has that claim upon all of us. And so if I see that in the people around me, if I see that you belong to God because we belong to God, it will cause me to treat others differently. And I would suggest that not many people actually live this way, actually have that mindset of we belong to God and therefore I see the intrinsic value in every human life, every human life, because we belong to God. The author David Brooks has said it like this. The critical question is not who am I, but whose am I? You, you could take that and, and apply that whole progression of thought, right? The beginning is, who am I? I belong to me. But you progress and you start to go, well, whose am I? And, and how do I see my role and your role and our identity together through the lens of God? And only when we see our connection to God can we fully see each other. Now take this back to, to what we're experiencing right now. So here's what I would, uh, I would venture a guess, that every single one of us, okay, uh, and maybe it's not true for you, but I would suggest at least the vast majority of us who are, are experiencing this or watching or listening to this right now, you probably have an opinion on how things are reopening uh, around us right now. Now, again, uh, depending on where you live, uh, what state you live in, uh, this is going to be different for you. If you're in a different country, obviously, uh, this is going to be a little bit different for you. But each of us have probably an opinion that it's either going too fast or it's going too slow or it just isn't going the way it should be going. And we would do it differently if we could decide how to reopen everything, how to get back to you know, life as we once knew it. Uh, you and I would probably do it differently that is being done. And I don't know where you land on that. Maybe you're thinking, this is the slowest thing in the world. What are we doing? Or maybe you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm concerned at how quickly this is going. Wherever you fall on that spectrum, you likely have an opinion. And, and yet, uh, while I don't want to change your opinion on that, I want to ask you to, to peel that back a, a step and go, what's behind that opinion that you have? As you look at how things are reopening or how we're getting back to, to life, uh, what is, is shaping that? 
You see, I think for many of us, we would say, well, uh, it's based on what's best for me, right? Like, here's how this rollout is going to affect me, and I either like that or I don't like that. And again, uh, you have lots of opinions based on how it's going to affect you. And, and again, for a lot of us, we're very negatively affected by so many things that are happening right now. And so I can understand of, well, yeah, this is, this is really bad for me. But again, if we understand the progression of thought, rather than just thinking, well, what's best for me? What if we began to ask, what is best for us? Like, like how do we roll this out? How do we get back to life in a way that is best for us. And even then you have to take a step back and go, well, how wide, how big is your sense of us? Is us your family? Is us your friends and and your community? Is us people in a similar walk of life, people in a similar profession to you that are, are being affected the same way you are? Or is us something bigger than that? Is us something more holistic? Is us those who are, are, are further distanced to us, but yet we feel some sense of responsibility toward them? You begin to see how we ask the same question that Cain asked, even in a situation like this. Now, I came across a, a, a thoughtful, powerful, profound uh, quote from a pastor named Aaron Nequist. And I'll just let this sit here for a second because this is a provocative idea, but here's something that he recently said. He said, the divide in our country appears to be between those who are willing to submit on behalf of the common good and those who want the common good to submit to their private rights. We first versus me first. Most desire both, but when forced to choose, the distinction gets clear. See, I think that last line is incredibly insightful. I think most of us want what is best for me and what is best for us. And if we can have both, we gladly choose it. But the question becomes when you can't have both and you have to decide where do we lean? Do we lean toward what's best toward us, toward me, toward my group or my tribe? or what's best toward a bigger sense of us. Even if it were to inconvenience me or make me suffer, if it was ultimately better for all of us, I would be on board with that. Now, in my conversations with with church leaders right now, um, I found there's essentially two responses that I'm seeing from from different pastors and and different churches when it comes to uh, reopening, when it comes to what's the future of the church, how do we do this? One approach would be, we got to get back to things as they were, as fast as we can. Reopen the building, uh, get services going again, figure out how quickly we can get people back in it. Uh, Let's just get back to this as quickly as possible. And let's act as if this whole thing didn't happen. Uh, It'll be a blip on the radar. Let's get right back to where we were. But then there's a second approach uh, that many churches are taking, which is recognizing that the old normal is gone and it's probably not going to come back the way it was. And instead of rushing to get back to that, saying, how do we sit in this space really well? How do we process this well? How, How do we pivot well? How do we sense what God is up to and what God is asking of us and patiently wait upon that? Now, I just want to let you know, if you're wondering which category uh, our church would fall into, we're definitely in the second category. 
We are patiently waiting, going, okay, God, we don't, we don't think we're getting back to where we were. Uh, how do we lead now? How do we uh, invite your spirit to, to reinvigorate us, to, to dream with us? Where would you take us? And so we're asking deeper questions. This is all the way from our eldership uh, on down through our staff of, of how do we process this season? And so we're not in a rush to get right back to the way things were because we think that the world has fundamentally changed and that God has something new in store. And so we're trying to discern what does this look like, God? How do you wanna use people like us? And, and what does this look like? In fact, we have a staff axiom. We have 12 different axioms at our staff of, of, of our staff culture. Um, and, and one of our axioms says this, that everything touches everything. That, that what one person does uh, may, maybe in one ministry or at one campus is going to have a ripple effect into what happens across the board. And so we encourage our, our team, don't just make decisions that are good for you because everything touches everything. The decisions you make will have an impact on those around you. And one of the ways that we explain this is to avoid counterfeit wins. You might go, what's a counterfeit win? A counterfeit win, though, the way that we talk about it, is a win that is only a win for me, but it causes harm to you. And so I might go, look at this success. This is so great for me. But if I did damage to you, if I caused harm to you, we would call that on our staff a counterfeit win. And so if one campus wanted to do something, and again, this gives you a little picture to how we, how we try to lead this. If one campus said, hey, this would be so good for us, can we do this? But we realized that would hurt the other campuses, we would say, no, that's a counterfeit win. Now, it may be true that it really would help that one campus, but if it would hurt other campuses, we don't say yes to that exchange. Or if one ministry says, hey, this would be really good for me, uh, this would be a win for our ministry, but we recognize, hey, another team would be negatively affected by that. That is a counterfeit win, and we do not make that exchange. And it's because it's everything touches everything. And it's a way that we live out a responsibility to those around us. Now, you may think, man, what, what an interesting question that Cain asked. Am I my brother's keeper? I wish we had an answer. I, I wish someone came along and gave us a way to think about it. Well, friends, I got good news for you. There's this guy named Jesus, and he did. Jesus came, and he answers Cain's question. Now, he does this in many ways, but I can just show you one story that Jesus told that I think is an answer to Cain's question. Am I... My brother's keeper, God, what do you expect from me in regard to those around me? And I want to show you what Jesus says in Luke chapter 15, verse 3. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. 
Now, if you're, you're looking at this, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is Jesus's way of thinking. This is how Jesus processes this. See, here's what you just got to acknowledge. This seems like an illogical response. This, this is not like, oh, obviously that's what you do. And yet Jesus is inviting us to have a different kind of logic. So Jesus, we inconvenience the 99 for the sake of the one. That is your argument that, that we leverage these 99 who are doing just fine, who are doing what they're supposed to do for the one that has, has gone astray or the one that needs help. Well, those numbers don't make sense, but this is the logic of the kingdom. This is the logic of those of us who want to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior to say, this is how we treat people. You are indeed responsible. You are illogically responsible to those around you. And so I would say it like this. You are responsible for the welfare of your brother, of your sister, of your neighbor, of the stranger around you, of the stranger far away. You are indeed illogically responsible as their keeper. And when you accept this, you become truly human. You, you become full. You, you begin to reverse the, the break in humanity that exists at this first murder of Cain as he kills his brother Abel. We begin to put those pieces back together as we take up that responsibility to those around us to say, you matter and what is going on with you is now my, response, my responsibility. And it would forever change the world if we lived like this, if we treated those around us like this. And so I would say this, our default question is probably this, what is best for me right now? Just the default question that most people are asking right now, what is best for me right now? That is going to be what I'm fighting for. That is going to what, be what is shaping my opinion on, on how we get back to all this. What is best for me right now? But I think we need to learn to ask, what is best for all of us right now? What is best for all of us? And make the us as wide as you possibly can. What is best for all of us? And begin to address that way of thinking. How do we process this? Now you may say, well, yeah, but if I did that, it might negatively affect me. And you're beginning to understand the logic that Jesus is inviting us to live by. That's why as a church, our mission is that we are giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. It is uh, exchanging the me focus for an us focus to say, how do I give me? How do I surrender that idea of me, what's best for me, to what is best for us? And if you can get there, here's a question I'd encourage you to wrestle with between you and God as you invite God's Holy Spirit to infuse this and to respond to you. Here's the question. What does it look like to be the keeper of others in a pandemic? Now, you might go, give me the answer to that. I, I, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't feel like I can or need to answer that question for you. I need to point you in the right direction to say, this is a question I think we should be asking of God. What does it look like for me to be the keeper of others in the midst of a season like this, in the midst of a pandemic? What does it mean for me? How do I live this out? How do I leave the 99 for the one? How do I pursue Jesus in this way? 
What does it mean for me when I see the suffering in Italy? What does it mean for me when I see the suffering of those in New York? What does it mean for me when I see how others around me are affected differently than me? Do I think, wow, so glad that's not me? Or I think, how do I live for them? How do I give myself so that they are better off? What would that mean for me? I wanna close with something that the author, Rachel Held Evans, once said. It's a beautiful picture about who we understand as the us and what it means to live out our faith. It says, the gospel doesn't need a coalition devoted to keeping the wrong people out. It needs a family of sinners saved by grace, committed to tearing down the walls, throwing open the doors and shouting, welcome. There's bread and wine. Come eat with us and talk. This isn't a kingdom for the worthy. It's a kingdom for the hungry. And as people are hungry, those of us who have found the food have more to share. If we transition from what is best for me to what is best for us in church in the midst of a pandemic, let us be those who are our brothers and our sisters keepers. Let's pray together. Jesus, may you show us how to do this. May you invite us to experience the same question that Cain asked. We wonder what responsibility do we have to those around us? And may we get the logic of Jesus and the simple illustration of leaving 99 to go after the one. That you, you are so caring about the one that you have an illogical response. May we have that same heart. May that heart beat inside of us, of those who want to follow you, those who want to see you transform the world. And so in a season where there is fear, there is uncertainty, there is death, there is sickness, there is so much, may we be those who take care of our neighbor, who take care of the stranger, who take care of those around us, who process our own reality in light of how it affects not just us, but those around us. And as we do this, Jesus, may you do something beautiful. May you do something profound as you bring healing and hope to a world that is hungry. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.